Hello and welcome to episode 14. As always, thank you for tuning in as we continue here to revisit some of your favorite films. We dive into some fun behind-the-scenes facts and sometimes even bring some classic dialogue to the mix, like, now I know what a TV dinner feels like. I'm your movie-loving host, Frank. I hope you're a movie lover, too. And this is Silver Screeners. Now, one thing with without intending to, what I realize that I've done between the Superman episode that I did not too far back and this one, episode 14, for the second time in three episodes, I've gone for movies that have in them these scenes that involve dizzying heights. I've mentioned before that I've got a history of getting nauseous simply by looking down at the first floor of an open shopping area from the second floor, but I've gotten better with it, and I even I even went ziplining with my daughter a couple of years ago, and truth be told, damn terrifying, but what a rush. No need to do it again, but never say never. So, uh, this first came into the conversation a couple of shows back. We looked at Superman, and specifically at Lois Lane's helicopter scene. Go ahead and give that episode a listen if you haven't already. Really good stuff about the director, Richard Donner. But when I was pulling together everything for this episode, one of today's two movies contains some of the same kind of adrenaline rush, meaning that it has action sequences involving characters dangling precipitously from these skyscrapers. Maybe it was subconscious in my pad. I have no no idea, no way of guessing. But rather than going into any more of that, out of respect for any listeners who don't want plot spoilers, this is the way we're going to approach today's two movies. And what are they? None other than 1988's Die Hard and 1952's High Noon. Now, on the surface, maybe they look like diametrically opposed movies, but as any good fan of Die Hard can tell you, there is a pretty strong connection. I'd recommend them both, but for different reasons, of course. But one is a late 1980s modern-day action classic that spawned a franchise, and it also gave new meaning to the term yippee Kaye. And the other is more of a subdued, character-driven piece of social commentary from 1952, and it's disguised as a western set in Kansas. So, how do you bridge the gap? Two movies that, on the surface, do not seem to have anything to do with each other. First, let me give you spoiler-free setups of both of these films, the setups. Then I'll give you the heads-up for the potential spoilers that will come in the -the behind-the-scenes fun facts. And then we'll go into the final lap with the parallels that will answer these very questions that, that I just pointed out. How do these two movies relate to each other? And, to be candid with you... Die Hard's director, John McTiernan, he said himself that there were parallels between these two specific films. So, all right, let's do this. First, the setup of Die Hard. For the record, I'm speaking only of the first one. I'm not talking about the entire franchise. I'm not speaking of the ill-conceived mid-90s parody. If you remember Spy Hard with Leslie Nielsen, did not exactly put my sides in any great danger of being split, unfortunately. But the real Die Hard does deserve its reputation for being as fun and as great of an action thriller and dark comedy that, you know, movies as much as it can get so bruce willis he is an nypd officer named john mcclain 
As the movie begins, he's on a plane on his way to Los Angeles. It's Christmas time. He's a little nervous on the plane, and the guy next to him advises that once you get to where you're going, just take off your shoes and socks, make fists with your toes, and walk around barefoot on the carpet. Now, <laughs> as someone who never myself really dealt much with a fear of flying, which I cannot figure out because if I have trouble looking down at the second floor, at the first floor of a mall, but um, I can't say. I have no idea if there is any viability to this guy's advice. But if there is, if you yourself have ever made fists with your toes barefoot in a carpet, hey, if it helps, please tell me because I am genuinely curious and <laughs> I'll try it. But anyway, uh, Bruce Willis, or his character, his character, John McClane, he and his wife, Holly, played by Bonnie Bedelia, their marriage is on the rocks, and she has the kids in L.A. because she recently got a new job with Nakatomi Corporation. Pretty high-ranking position that she's got. They meet up in L.A., and they talk pretty okay with each other at first about him joining her and the kids for Christmas and how they all want him there, and it's nice. And then the conversation sort of breaks into pieces as they begin to whip out and hurl the verbal daggers at each other. And after they fight, there he is, making fists with his toes, and by jingo, it works. So there you have all of that established. There's a Christmas Eve party with her co-workers and her boss, Mr. Tagaki. Little wine, little cheese and crackers, that kind of thing. And that's where the fun really begins. Because, you see, <laughs> there is a little band of terrorists led by Hans, played by Alan Rickman. He's joined by a few other, a few other villains, uh, one of them being a sociopath named Carl, with a K, played by Alexander Gudenov. Now, these villains, the movie villains, they don't, they don't really talk about anything political, and that was a deliberate choice of the director, to have their motivation be more financial rather than political, because he wanted to make the movie more more enjoyable, more palatable as summertime entertainment. But there's a hostage takeover. Mr. Tagaki, he seems to be the primary target because he represents, as Hans puts it, quote, greed around the globe, end quote. He is... Mr. Tagaki is planning on expanding his business operations into Indonesia, where he insists to the villains that, no, I'm not out to exploit anybody, I'm only out to develop. Develop, not exploit. So naturally, Hans and his gang, they don't buy into his justification, so now, hostage takeover. And it is up to John McClane, who is somewhere else in the building. He's not at the party. And it's up to him to do his due diligence to save the day, to save his wife, to save the hostages, to, to bring the baddies to justice, basically. And throughout the course of events, you got the LAPD outside, you got the FBI getting involved, and you got the internal power struggles as... Everyone disagrees on how to handle this Christmas Eve crisis. And in the cast throughout the movie, you will see Robert Davi, 
who plays Jake Fratelli in The Goonies, one of the Fratelli brothers. You will also see Reginald Vell Johnson, who is probably most known to TV audiences for the 90s comedy series Family Matters. This is the one with Steve Urkel. You will also have Paul Gleason, who was the principal from The Breakfast Club. I'll stop there as far as setting up this movie. If you have not seen it, then hopefully that intro helps to whet your appetite for some good old-fashioned Christmas cheer, action movie style, Christmas by the Fire with Bruce. Now, flashback to 36 years, 36 years previously. Leave late 20th century Los Angeles behind in the dust and go back to 1952. In 1952, a movie called High Noon was released. It was set, or is set, in the 1800s. Now, High Noon is one of the most critically acclaimed American westerns ever made. How well it holds up these days, that's debatable, of course, but there you have it. Gary Cooper, he won his second Best Leading Actor Oscar for High Noon, and this is also the movie that launched the film career of Grace Kelly, who found herself one of the most sought-after leading ladies of 1950s cinema. She did no fewer than three films with Alfred Hitchcock. She did Rear Window, Dial M for Murder, and To Catch a Thief. So as High Noon begins, it's the 1800s. It's a typical frontier town called Hadleyville in Kansas, and it's shortly after the U.S. Civil War has ended. As the movie opens, you have these three shady-looking characters, and they're out in the prairie with their horses, and throughout the opening credits, these three dudes are non-verbally communicating to each other about something that we don't know about just yet. They take their horses, and they ride into town, and there is consternation on the faces of some of the townsfolk as they see these three parading through the center of town like they own the place. The local barber has a customer in his chair. He walks away from the customer, looks out his window, he goes over to his door, looks out the open door, sees the three of them walking by. Through his dialogue, we learn of the names of these three. You know, he identifies them by name. Ominous music begins to play. That's our cue to say, oh, okay, they're bad guys. <laughs> and the three of them, they ride up to the ticket master at the train depot, and they ask for confirmation that the 12 o'clock noon train is on time. 12 o'clock noon, the title, High Noon. So the ticket master, he nervously says, yep. And then we cut to Will Kane, play, played by Gary Cooper, and Amy Fowler, played by Grace Kelly. They're in the middle of their wedding ceremony. They are happily pronounced married. The, he, he is the town marshal. And now that he is officially a married man, he hands in his badge and he resigns. Because his new bride, Amy, she is a peace-loving Quaker. And his new life is to leave behind law enforcement to, you know, walk away from a life of potential violence and, you know, 
you know, unpleasantness and to live as peacefully as possible. The idea is, is that he'll run a store. So new life all around, new bride, new career, new life all around. Everything is just hunky-dory at this wedding ceremony. Everybody's happy. People are smiling. Suddenly, the Ticketmaster comes in with a telegram announcing that a criminal named Frank Miller, a dangerous convict that Will Kane had put away before, this guy, Frank Miller, this criminal, has unexpectedly been pardoned. So... Now that he is pardoned, he is a free man. The Ticketmaster says that Frank Miller's brother, Ben, and the other two cronies, their names are Jim and Jack, they were down at the depot, he says. They asked me if the noon train is on time. I said yes. So they assume the worst of the worst, that Frank Miller is coming back to town as a newly freed man, where he will wreak his vengeance upon Will Kane for putting him away years earlier. So, of course, everyone is telling Will, you got to get out of here. You got to get going. Leave town. Which was, you know, he was going to do that anyway, he and his new bride. But now it's, okay, (laughs) no time for a last-minute trip to the bathroom. Let's just get the hell out of here. So, the newlyweds, they take off in a hurry in their horse and buggy. They are seen leaving town by his replacement, the new deputy marshal named Harvey Pell, P-E-L-L, and he gloats as he sees them leaving town in the horse and buggy. He's gloating, and he says, uh, he must be running away uh, because, you know, the thugs are back in town. And this character, Harvey Pell, is played by Lloyd Bridges 28 years before he picked the wrong week to quit sniffing glue in airplane. He is also, in real life, Lloyd Bridges, the father of the dude in The Big Lebowski. So, Kane, Gary Cooper, he then, as he and Grace Kelly, as he and Amy, as he and his wife Amy are leaving town, he suddenly pulls the horse and buggy, the carriage, to a stop. And, you know, she's there like, what are you doing? And he says... I've never run away before. I can't now. I've I've got to go back into town. I've got to face this thing. I cannot run away like a coward. Now, poor Amy does not understand any of this. She is totally out of the loop. So he waits until they are back in town before he tells her what the situation is. It's not until they return to town. She's at this point all confused and, you know, what the hell. And he says to her, and I think this was really the way to get the movie audience to understand what's going on, plot exposition. There was this guy, Frank Miller, and he was supposed to hang for committing murder five years ago, but his sentence was commuted to life in prison, and now it looks like he's freed, and so he's coming back to town, presumably for revenge, revenge against me, you know, murderous thug that he is. Or or as he puts it, quote, he'll probably make trouble. End quote. Classic dialogue from this kind of movie at the time. So they go back and forth, he and Amy, and, you know, he says to her, you know, I'm the one, I'm the one who sent him up. And she says, but there's a new marshal now. It's no longer your job, not your responsibility anymore. No, no, no. It seems to me I've got to stay. I'm the, I'm the same man with or without this badge. They'll just come after us even if we left and were alone on the prairie. They'd come after us as long as we live. And so she's continuing to to plead with him and to reason with him. Don't try to be a hero, she says. You don't have to be not for me. 
I'm not trying to be a hero. You know, this, this is my town. I've got friends here. I'll get a posse behind me. Maybe there'll be no trouble. And at this point, she grows a bit more defensive and defiant. And she says, you're asking me, she says, to wait until noon when the train comes in to find out if I'm going to be a wife or a widow. And she says, I'm not playing that game if these are the rules. I'm going to go off on my own if I have to. And so he looks at her dramatically. She's looking at him dramatically. He has a choice to make. And ultimately, what he says to her is, I've got to stay. So he wants and hopes that he can get a group of supporters behind him so that there'll be strength in numbers against this common enemy that is Frank Miller, you know, even if it means his new wife will take off without him. And you have to understand that all of this is in just the first 15 minutes. So that's the setup of High Noon. So what do we do with this? What do we do with Die Hard and High Noon? It may not seem like these two movies have much in common, but here is where I do say proceed at your own discretion, because from this point on, I'm going to be talking about both movies in depth, so spoiler alert. And if you do hit pause and go watch the movies, don't forget to come back afterwards to, to finish this. So, to get the parallels, we first need to look at the behind-the-scenes facts. We'll begin with Die Hard, because... What the hell? So, grab a cup of cocoa, uh, gingerbread man, put on your Christmas jammies, and settle in for the top five behind-the-scenes facts about Die Hard, one of the best Christmas movies ever made. Number five. I mentioned the character Carl, one of the villains, alongside Alan Rickman's Hans. Like I said already, Carl is played by Alexander Gudinov, he may look familiar to you if you saw 1985's Witness, starring Harrison Ford, or 1986's uh, comedy The Money Pit with Tom Hanks and Shelley Long. Now here he is, showing up in 1988, and he's, you know, he's got a nice little acting niche for himself playing this kind of character. He was pretty sketch in Witness, he was pretty slimy in The Money Pit, and now he's full-on sociopath in Die Hard. Not a bad streak of high-profile roles, so good on him. But what is interesting about him is that, before acting, he was a ballet dancer in his native Russia. He actually defected to the U.S. from Russia in 1979, when acting eventually, of course, did become his career. But another interesting thing is that he was, he was never really comfortable with guns. Never owned a real gun, never shot bullets using a real gun. He was quoted as saying, "...when I was a child, I used to play with toy pistols." But shooting blanks out of a real gun makes you think of the tremendous power one can have and how easy it is for one person to kill another. Number four, Alan Rickman, his big exit, dangling from the office building, high in the air, clutching Holly to bring her down with him. He was airdropped from a forklift 25 feet above an airbag. He also had on a, a quick-release harness. He, he was nervous, but he did it. And here's the, here's the thing. They told Rickman, okay, they said to him, we're going to go three, two, one, go. And on go, we will release you. He said, fine. But they deliberately released him one beat earlier. They never said go. They released him on one. Three, two, one, bye. So that WTF look in his face, that shock and that whoa, that was the real deal. That was his reaction because he was not expecting to be let go uh, quite so quickly. And that was the take that they used. So think of that next time you see that drop. Number three. 
for the wide shot of him falling through the air, they brought they did bring in a stunt person to drop a whopping thirty-two floors onto a descender. Now, what's a descender? Uh, it's sort of a it's sort of like an elevator. You have a cable on your back and an extension bar that's hooked up to a paddle braking system. You fall a certain number of feet per second. He fell thirty-two floors and stopped right off the ground like he's freaking Tom Cruise in the first Mission Impossible. Number two, the fictional Nakatomi building is the real-life Fox Plaza in Los Angeles, which is, you know, a landmark of the L.A. skyline. According to co-screenwriter Stephen D'Souza, when John McClane begins shooting on the rooftop to get the hostages off the roof and down the stairs, he said, that's what we want. We want the hostages off the roof. We want them off the roof. We want him to shoot. But then we realize that if he shoots, the FBI will mistake him for a villain, which is what we don't want. And this leads to the big moment when McClane leaps from the rooftop. Now, the stunt guy, Chuck Pisserni, he said that the director of Die Hard did not know much about the technology of stunts. He said that the director wanted to shoot all of this stuff blue screen. And he said, no, 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 no. We don't need to shoot blue screen. We can do this. And he said, the stunt guy said, I remember standing on the roof. I remember standing on the roof of the Fox Plaza building, and I was all enthusiastic. I jumped up onto the edge and said, John, John, the director, we could have him jump off right here. And the director was there like, no, 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 get down from there. So I guess that's why he was thinking blue screen. <laughs> and that brings us to fun fact number one for Die Hard. That was Bruce Willis, not a stunt person, in the shot when he leaps off the roof as the roof blows up behind him. That was Bruce Willis in that famous shot. They worked it out carefully ahead of time uh, to figure out exactly you know, what he could expect, mostly the heat. His back was padded. Any exposed skin, they covered up with a special kind of gel that would absorb as much of the heat as possible. They set off the explosion. He jumped, and he was going into an airbag because it was, of course, a high fall. The wide shot was a stunt person on a decelerator, and what that is is a, it's a wire rig that allowed him to control his descent. For the wider shot of the explosion, a special effects supervisor name was Al DeSaro. He set off this colossal fireball on the actual roof of the Fox Plaza building. He said, and I quote, We mixed diesel fuel and high-octane jet fuel to get a different look, end quote. He set these mortars on plywood. I think the plywood was one and an eighth inches thick or something like that. He closed all of the roof's access doors. He taped up any cracks to absorb concussion. And he said that concussion wants to rattle itself through the floors and blow windows out. It would have taken two or three floors easy. This was all done on a stage, that piece of it. He said, we had Bruce swinging on a pulley that ran through the backing on the stage wall after he hit the window. Now, if you think back to the movie, he jumps off the roof, the explosion's behind him, and he bounces against the side of the building, takes out his gun, shoots out the glass, goes through the glass. He's now back inside the building. When they were filming that, after he hit the window, 
uh, Dasaro said, we took safety glass out and put in tempered glass in, and, you know, boom, he's through. When the spool began to pull him out, that was me standing on the floor pulling Bruce. He was fighting a little more than he did, and plus I had I had put a little silicone under the pad he was on, so he was slipping. And he concludes his explanation with this statement, those are the cute things we do. So, cute indeed. <laughs> and there you have five fun facts about this perennial Christmas favorite. With all of that laid out, we can now move on to 1952's four-time Oscar-winning High Noon, which is the which is set in the archetypal 19th century rural American county set in Kansas. So, number five, Grace Kelly was 21 years old at the time of the filming. Gary Cooper was 51. This did not go unnoticed. <laughs> she was dissatisfied with her performance in the film. This was her debut in a leading role. And she said that if you look at the film and look at her eyes, you can tell, she said, that I feel nothing, that I'm not, you know, in the moment. Three years later, three years after High Noon, she would be a three-time Hitchcock star as well as an Academy Award winner. She'll, she would have an Oscar to put on her mantle. So, I guess everyone's their own worst critic. <laughs> number four. Fun fact number four. The song that you hear a few times throughout the movie, including the opening credits, the title of that song is Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling. And what is the meaning of that title? It, you know, it could refer to her character, Amy. It might refer to the townspeople themselves. Maybe it refers to all of them. It's a song really about loyalty and betrayal. It did win the Oscar for Best Song for the two songwriters. The guy who actually sang it is Tex Ritter, who was the father of Three's Company's John Ritter, the television sitcom from the late 70s, early 80s. Fun fact number three, they actually began production of High Noon by shooting the film in color, which at that point was becoming more and more of a thing. But director Fred Zinneman, he was not too wild about the aesthetics of the film when they were looking at the, at the rushes at the dailies, and the producer of the film, Stanley Kramer, he agreed with him. And so the scenes that they shot in color, they reshot in black and white, and they proceeded to finish the whole film in black and white. My personal opinion, black and white does suit the tone of the film a lot better than color could ever hope to. Number two, American actor, quintessential Western star John Wayne hated this movie. He called it, and I quote, the most un-American thing I've ever seen in my whole life, end quote. Now, given John Wayne's famous political conservatism, it's probably, it shouldn't be too surprising that he was anti-High Noon. After all, the movie does not depict law enforcement in a very flattering light. They are either, um, you know, slimy narcissists like the Lloyd Bridges character, or in the case of Gary Cooper's character, he actually dares to to show to show fear. He shows self doubt. He's not the the manly man that John Wayne was always playing in his films. So, the director of uh, another director, not the director of High Noon, another director by the name of Howard Hawks. He had done movies like. His Girl Friday with Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell. He directed The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. 
Um, he also, Howard Hawks was also turned off by High Noon. So together, John Wayne and Howard Hawks, they teamed up to make a movie called Rio Bravo. Rio Bravo has a relatively similar storyline, but in Rio Bravo, the Sharf character, he's all swagger and confidence, you know, like you know, real men are supposed to be, I guess. So according to mentalfloss.com, Rio Bravo's director, Howard Hawks, said, I made Rio Bravo because I didn't like High Noon. I didn't think a good town marshal was going to run around town like a chicken with his head cut off, asking everyone to help. And who saves him? His Quaker wife. That isn't my idea of a good Western, end quote. <laughs> I'll, just, I'll just leave that right there and won't say anything further about that. Lastly, number one. The, one fact, the number one fact about High Noon. The weird thing is, is that despite everything that I just said, John Wayne and Gary Cooper in real life, they were friends. Now, when Gary Cooper, when he got his Best Leading Actor Oscar for High Noon, uh, this was his second Oscar. He had won his first about a decade earlier for Pride of the Yankees. He did not attend the ceremony because he was in Mexico. He was in Mexico filming a movie called um, Blowing Wild. So who accepted the Oscar on Gary Cooper's behalf? John Wayne. And in his acceptance speech, Wayne spoke pretty favorably of Coop, as he called him. So there you have the five behind-the-scenes facts about High Noon. So now that we have taken a look at High Noon and at Die Hard, what makes these two movies connected? For one thing, the hero in each one. Will Kane in High Noon, John McClane in Die Hard. Their names even rhyme. <laughs> Kane, McClane. Both are kind of the shunned figure, the one that the authorities in charge don't necessarily go for, they don't support, at least not wholeheartedly. Maybe they give a lot of lip service, but when the chips are down, you know, they they fail to stand by him, and they don't put themselves on the line, which is what he is doing for them, and they wuss out. They wuss out, and they fail to come through for him because they want to save their own hides. So he's left all by, his, by himself to face off against the heavies, and but he still does it. He still does it because of a sense of personal conviction. And in both films, when he succeeds in the final reel, he bitterly, th well, in High Noon, he bitterly throws his, his martial badge onto the dusty ground right there in the middle of the main street in town. He takes his bride with him. They get into the buggy and they ride away, presumably forever. I mean, what else is there for them in the town? They know that they have no real alliances there. And just as they are taking, you know, just as they're, as they're leaving, the song comes up again. Do not forsake me, oh my darling. The inexplicably Oscar-winning best song. You listen to it and, you know, let me know what you think of it. It kicks in and the song has a pretty plaintive tone to it. And... And so that's the way that uh, High Noon ends. As far as the way that Die Hard ends, the leadership of the FBI, Dwayne T. Robinson, who was the principal in The Breakfast Club. So the movie is, you know, at, you know almost, is almost over, and John McClane and his wife Holly Allen Rickman has just fallen to his death. So McClane and his wife Holly, they're walking out of the building, and, you know, they're beaten and they're bruised and they're physically scathed, but, you know, they, they're triumphantly clinging to each other. They walk out of the building, 
and Robinson Breakfast Club, he is all agitated and he chooses this moment to to chew out John McClane. You know, protocol wasn't followed and blah, blah, blah. Sergeant Al Powell, Family Matters, uh, he and McClane, they finally meet face to face after spending the whole movie communicating through a walkie talkie, never having met each other before. So they're now meeting each other face to face now that the danger has passed. They're embracing warmly and... That's when Powell has a moment of redemption of his own because the Alexander Goodenough character, Carl, uh, he's got nine lives like Michael Myers, apparently, because no matter what happened to him, he's still alive. And here he is for one last one last jump scare. And Breakfast Club principal is basically shoved aside. And McLean and Holly, you know, they, Powell comes to their rescue. So everybody has, well, the good guys, they all have their moments of, of redemption. And McLean and Holly, the final shot is of the two of them getting into the back of a taxi cab and driving off. We see them through the rear window of the cab and they are kissing. It's true cinematic style, you know, kissing. We see it through the back window as they drive off just as Let It Snow kicks in with its festive spirit. So in both movies, you have the couple triumphantly you know, leaving danger behind, having stood up to the, to the bad guys and, you know, leaving behind the people who failed to come through for them. So if you think about it in both movies, you know, these two guys, they, well, they put, they're the hero. They put their neck on the line for people who don't deserve them. You know, these people failed him in some way, and he, in his own defiant fashion, does what he needs to do anyway and comes out the bigger person for it. So there's this sense of personal conscience and personal conviction, you know, that's steadfast and unyielding much more than any civic or business or political entity that's used to calling the shots depicted in these movies can be. You know, whether we're talking about local law enforcement in, uh, you know, in Hadleyville, Kansas, or whether we're talking about the FBI director, you know, Breakfast Club. So in both movies, you know, he's he's sort of shunned and disregarded, cast aside in some way, but he still comes through for them in the end, saves the day through sheer willpower. So if you take a second and focus on the climactic standoff in Die Hard, this is something else I wanted to point out. Uh, now, this is going backwards a bit. This is when Bruce Willis walks on, uh, walks, you know, enters the frame. He's holding his, his weapon, and Alan Rickman has Holly in his grip with a gun pointed at her head. So here is McLean, considerably wounded, the machine gun in his hands. He's stumbling his way towards Hans. Hans has Holly, and it's a well-worn and overdone setup. And in Die Hard, they, the, the dialogue in this scene is pretty meta, even before meta was even a thing, meaning that the characters know that the situation that they're, the situation that they're in is lifted straight from a movie cliche, and in this case, High Noon. And God knows how many others like High Noon. And I can think of Gunfight at the OK Corral, for one thing. But Alan Rickman, he says to McLean, You Americans are all alike. Well, this time John Wayne does not walk off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. And McLean retorts, That's Gary Cooper, a-hole. 
So when they were writing this dialogue, they obviously knew what they were doing, you know, when they created this scenario. They don't refer to High Noon by its title. I don't know if that was copyright reasons, but they're referring to High Noon, Grace Kelly and Gary Cooper. The editor of Die Had, his name is John Link, he says in the track commentary of the DVD that the director of Die Had said to him, this is a shootout. This scene is a shootout. This is a cowboy coming into town. So the western town in High Noon becomes this modern high-rise corporate office building setting in Die Had. And funnily enough, the director of Die Had says in the commentary, he says, I was terrified of building this scene because it's such a cliche. The villain holding the gun to the head of the hero's love interest, literally seen 50 or 60 times. I think we got away with it all right, end quote. And if you've seen a lot of action movies, uh, the track commentary on the DVD mentions Dirty Harry and RoboCop, for example. I can even think of, I can even think of a couple of comedies where it's been parodied. <laughs> Police Academy, The Naked Gun. Um, so it's nothing new. It's nothing new. You know, if you've seen action movies, you've seen this kind of climactic moment. So Die Hard and High Noon, at least in this context they're really not all that different from one another. You know, the hero is there to dole out justice and bring the villain or the villains to their knees, saves the day. And in both movies, interestingly enough, it's his wife. It's his wife who is held at, uh, at gunpoint. So next time anyone, next time you hear anyone even try to write off Die Hard as nothing more than just brainless summertime action movie, you know, standard action fare with no substance, we can counter that because this is this is one of those things that I personally love about the movies, about any movies, is that you know the art of, the art of cinema in general. If it's in the right hands, if a movie is being made with at least a little bit of of forethought, you know, if a film is made with any attempt to be you know to to have some kind of substance to it, it doesn't matter if it's a horror movie or a western or an action movie or what. If you watch a story that's being told right. You know, regardless of the genre, you know, you got something good there. So that's my two cents. You can spend them. You can save them. <laughs> you can shuck them as you see fit. Um, one thing before we close out, I do want to head over to the socials for a minute because I want to be sure that I do give a shout out to Patricia Noto 115 on Instagram. When I posted the preview of this episode, she responded with her thoughts as well. And she said on Instagram, loved both when others are slow to realize a problem or not willing to own up to responsibility. One man is willing to respond to a crisis. Sometimes that's all you need for others to follow. So she made some great points there. And, you know, because after all, if it weren't for Will Kane in High Noon, if it weren't for John McClane and Die Hard, the, you know, who knows how the stories would have played out. You know, maybe it would have been the same result, but you certainly wouldn't have gotten to that result in the same way. And that's what makes both of these characters as connected to each other as they are. They they do things their way, whether or not it's protocol. And what it all boils down to is that in the end, both walk away batted, but with their integrity intact. Thank you, Patricia Noto 115 for your thoughts. Sincerely appreciate it. Hope to hear from you again for future shows. So, before we go, one last thing, the trivia question. I'll put it out there on the socials along with the show link. I did not have a trivia question last episode, so this is, you know, a little delayed, 
But for a personalized meme and a shout out, take a crack at this one. I mentioned that Gary Cooper got his second Academy Award for High Noon and that the first one that he got was about a decade earlier for Pride of the Yankees. Here's the question. Name the real-life baseball player Gary Cooper plays in Pride of the Yankees. So, I'll give you one small hint. The ball player played for the Yankees. Uh, <laughs> not much of a hint, but, uh, you know... Run with it. Send your answers on over. And as always, if you have any follow-up questions or have any comments, thoughts of your own that you want to share on Die Hard, High Noon, or any movie that I have or have not yet talked about, hit me up. FilmBuff1974 is my Twitter handle. The film group Silver Screen is on Facebook. Frank Mendoza 1974 on Instagram. You can email me at frankmendoza at yahoo.com. I honestly, legitimately, genuinely do love hearing from people. Listeners, fellow podcasters, whoever. And that wraps up episode 14. Thank you, as always, for listening. Be sure to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. And honestly, no complaints here if you want to take a second to give a show a rating on Apple or iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to your podcasts. It does help to boost the algorithms and get more people to discover the show. Or if you want to leave a quick review of Silver Screeners, that would be great as well. Rock on. And as always, I'm Frank, and thank you. Thank you for joining me, and until next time, keep on screening. See ya.